The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Well, if you would please turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. And while our sermon will be looking at verses 8 through 12, I'd like to begin reading back in verse 6. What you're about to hear really is the living word of God. Please give your full attention to it as it's read in your hearing today. Colossians chapter 2 beginning verse 6, therefore as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by the putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The grass will wither and the flower does fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, if you uh, looked at the bulletin this morning, you would see that Pastor Brian is scheduled to Uh, preach this morning, and perhaps when I got up here, you thought, man, he's gotten taller during his trip to Zambia, and his beard much longer. Maybe you thought none of those things, but it was worth a try. Uh, So Pastor Brian swapped with me uh, the morning and the afternoon, yeah, the morning and the afternoon service. Uh, I'm sure as you saw with the email, his uh, teeth are not feeling super great, and so maybe a little less talking uh, would be good, although I'm smelling a two-parter here, Brian. Just looking ahead. Man, that feels good. Anyway. If you're, if you're new here, you're wondering what on earth we're talking about. Don't worry, it's sort of normal around here. So, as we look at this text in the book of Colossians, as Paul has been kind of unfolding the, the, the magnificence of the Lord Jesus Christ and then applying those excellencies to the life of, of just regular old believers who lived in a small town, uh, kind of out in the middle of nowhere in Asia Minor, as he's addressing them not in, in this theoretical, abstract sense of like, here's this theology that, that will be really good for a theology exam. What he's doing is he's taking the normal struggles of normal men and women who live by faith and live in a fallen world, and he's saying, you know what, in the midst of those struggles, what you need most of all is to have a rich, deep, abiding knowledge of and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, last week we looked at uh, Paul's exhortation when he talked about not being uh, deluded or being lured away. And we talked about how the world has, has this, well, this scheme that they will push upon you in very subtle, slight ways, and whether we acknowledge it or not, or whether we recognize it as clearly as we do at other points in our life, we're familiar with the lie that goes something like this. Jesus, in whatever circumstance and situation you're in, simply is not enough. Whether it's in your marriage or your parenting or, or whatever can be going on at work, there's this subtle, alluring, deluding lie that would seek to draw 
Christians away from that solid ground that we talked about and believe the lie that if I add something to Jesus, Jesus plus something, whatever circumstance I'm working on or going through will get better. And we, and we talked about how Paul's exhortation was to stand your ground on the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not be lured off of that. Now that was only one of the temptations that the world uh, brings towards us, a alluring and deluding temptation. Their second tactic is the one that's raised in the text uh, this morning. I almost said this afternoon, this morning. And you see it right there in the middle of verse 8 where he says, don't be taken captive. So the world kind of has, well, they've got lots of different tactics, but two that Paul will look at in this text. The first, a subtle alluring. We, we talked about how the, the lady in Proverbs, who is Madame Folly, calls in the streets and allures you to add something with smooth words and add something to Jesus. But that's not the world's only tactic. Their other tactic is to push you and see if by force they can get you off of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the the word that he actually uses, we'll get into it here in a minute, is to by force take you as one of their captives, to capture you and haul you off. So either by the subtle, smooth words of alluring or the barking threats of punishment, the world is going to push or draw on you to get you to buy the lie that the Savior you and I worship just simply isn't enough in whatever circumstance you're, you are dealing with. And the, uh, the, the message that Paul has for our hearts and, and minds today is that Jesus Christ, not only is he, is he enough, but he is a full savior for needy sinners. Jesus Christ is a full savior for needy sinners, and it's that conviction in that truth that can help fortify a saint in the onslaught of the world, first to not be drawn away from that position, but second to not be pushed off of that position. So we want to consider that this morning, that Christ is a full savior for needy sinners, and we want to do so under four headings this morning. The first is this, just the simple command of not being taken captive. Do not be taken captive. If you look down at verse 8, you'll notice that Paul begins with a command or an imperative. See to it that no one takes you captive. The command itself is actually, uh, the, the command It's just a simple word, look or see. The idea behind what Paul is saying here is, Christian, you and I cannot be so foolish to think that vigilance is not needed. In the world that we live in, we we can't be this, forgive the way I'll say it, this dumb or ignorant to not be vigilant. We can't take the posture of overly pious, uh, well, spiritual ostriches. That's the right way you make it a plural. Ostrichi. No, that's definitely not right. We can't bury our head in the sand and think, you know what? If I just cover my eyes or plug my ears and think there's no danger out there, the world's not coming for you, the world's not trying to push you off Christ, then by ignorance, I will be safe. Paul says, Christian, you, you can't live like that. The world in which we live is desperately trying to get you either drawn off or pushed off the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I cannot afford to be so ignorant that we would not have our eyes, physical and spiritual, wide open. 
Parents, if you have little kids and you're raising them, hopefully in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, I hope you know exactly what I'm talking about. Grandparents, you probably feel it far more than parents who have little kids in the house now are. I I only have 38 years of experience of knowing kind of what's out there in the world. Uh, My parents' generation, well, they've seen a lot more, and they can say, well, the the dangers out there are more than even you would understand. That's actually one of the reasons why I think it's so desperately important for churches to have just a broad spectrum of ages. You pile all the youthful ignorance and zeal in one church and all the gray hairs and wisdom in another, both are going to suffer. But we should, we should hear what Paul is saying in the text today to us. Christian, be alert. Eyes open. The, the temptation and the allurement of our enemy is out there. And you cannot afford to fall asleep on watch. As we mentioned last time, Paul is using, at least in the last couple of verses, uh, what I believe to be military type verbiage or language to describe our engagement in this world as people who've been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. So that staying in rank and forming a wall of, of, of shields, and we talked about that holding of the ground. It's that same sort of language here. Eyes open, be alert, do not fall asleep on watch. So what, what is the thing that we are to be watching Against Well, the, it's very clear in the middle of verse, or right at the beginning of verse 8. Watch out so that, or with this uh, intention, so that no one takes you captive. The word he uses, it's quite vivid. It means to drag you away as plunder. Very vivid language. Watch out so that no one is able to, with the either allurements or threats take you off as a trophy for what they have accomplished. Now, he'll go through and talk about uh, ways in which they seek to do that, but this is one of the early areas where Paul, I believe, is addressing false teachers who are out in the lives and in the minds of the church in Corinth, and he's warning them that they have captivating speech, smooth words, and captivating tactics. They seek to haul you off as spoils of war, quite literally. And there is a sense where we might be thinking like, well, okay, I'm not going to be physically carried off somewhere and set up as a trophy for them. Like, no, that's likely not going to happen. But in a spiritual sense, think back, Christian. Have you ever seen someone hauled off as plunder for the enemy? I've worshipped next to them. So have you. Let's not pretend that this doesn't happen. Let's not pretend that, that we've never taken the supper with somebody who then later through either smooth words or threatening actions, no longer confesses Christ as the Lord, has abandoned the post that Christ is enough. This is a real spiritual danger. And Paul's directive isn't to be paranoid about it. His directive is to be vigilant against it. And so what are the ways that they get Uh, carried off, or what are the tools of their trade? Well, he mentions them in verse 8. He says that they'll try to take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, by human tradition and by elemental spirits. We'll just briefly unpack each of those in their own turn. Paul says that one of their, one of their primary fundamental things that they will push on you is this idea of philosophy which is empty deceit. I actually think that he's not saying, well, there's philosophy, and then there's empty deceit, and they like to use both. I actually think the latter is Paul's commentary on the former. I think by empty deceit, he's actually, uh, well, giving us a bit of his thoughts on what philosophy is. You might say, I don't even like philosophy. 
I did terrible at it in college. Why, how would that draw me off? Brothers and sisters, I want to carefully warn you today that as much as we might think that to be an absurdity, we're actually seeing a rise in it currently. You might say, not in Reformed Baptist churches. I might say especially in Reformed Baptist churches. You're seeing a return. Well, I guess it's, nothing's new under the sun. But you're, you are hearing, and if you're, if you're like, I'm not hearing that, but like, oh, you're blessed. Continue in such a state. You're hearing that we need to again look to either Aristotelian thinking or Platonism and, and, and that, that without those two, you can't really understand your Bible. You might say no one would believe. Yes, they do. Sadly, true. Paul says, you know what, Christian? Watch out when you're being told you need philosophy. Christ is good, but you need this either to uh, not be seen as a fool or to be seen as more spiritual or more of a sophist or more of a, whatever the, the kind of language is or the reason they're pushing on it, that you need this in order to live the Christian life faithfully. Ironically or not so ironically, the next thing that he mentions is that human tradition is something that gets pushed on you and driven towards. You might say, like, come on, we're Protestants. We left all that when we, like, told the Catholic Church we're out, like, long time ago. You would be sad to hear that, again, what we're seeing is a return to these things. A return to an inordinate view of tradition. Hope we'd all say, obviously, tradition is important and valuable, and we're not the first Christians to live on this earth and think about these things, obviously. But there is an emphasis on tradition that is alarming and that would seek to draw people away. And it's so subtle. If you want to be a real or a true or a better, fill-in-the-blank kind of Christian, this is what that looks like. It's subtle. And at other times, it's bullish. It's pushy. The enemy can use both. The other is elemental spirits. You might say, I don't even know what that is, but apparently uh, there's a spiritual aspect in of the world. Well, I think Paul will actually develop this further later on, but it's a version of, well, fidelity in the faith that says they have a few different uh, catchphrases that all have to like kind of center on drawing fences around or limiting things that I don't believe the Bible limits. I say, can you be more specific? Yeah, Paul will in a little bit. But those who are saying, like, don't eat, don't drink, don't taste, don't touch, all of these don'ts are what we might start to call very fundamentalist tendencies. Well, a real Christian wouldn't do that. Or the better Christian wouldn't do this. We take God's word and we start to say, well, you know what? That's good, but it would be even better if we added this. This is one of the reasons why I, I do not believe in those diets that are, well, diets. <laughs> Send the word of God. Stay away from those who say don't eat. I'm like, don't eat. I'm going to eat. Let's just say it's about like shrimp and crabs, in which case I'm like, I'm steering clear of that mess. So um, th- 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 that's why like carb-free diets, just not something God made them. Obviously, you know that I'm joking, but do you not know of a brand of Christianity that would say, you know what, a real Christian doesn't enjoy the good gifts of God. The real Christian is one who's a cut above. I've actually heard it. I won't give the source on it, but the, the view was uh, John the Baptist came not drinking, 
and not feasting. And they held him up as like, see, no one, none greater than John the Baptist. You're like, the next verse says, but Jesus came eating and drinking. He called him a drunkard and a glutton. So they, there'd be those who would say, you know, be like John the Baptist. Uh, embrace these things as a means of spiritual gain. So the real Christian doesn't eat carbohydrates. The real Christian doesn't drink certain beverages. The real Christian. And they set up these barriers that sound like hyper-spirituality and might even look like hyper-spirituality. But Paul actually, even in the way that he describes them, calls them elemental spirits as a warning to be careful behind such statements are very real spiritual influences, not of a good spiritual source. Do you see the subtle eye that can sneak in? Add this to Christ. Add this to what God has said. Add this philosophy to what the word of God has done. And it just simply comes and with sweet words and on other blogs, quite pushy, uh, and says that this is what real Christianity is about. And in summary of it all, look at the end of verse 8. All of these things are not according to Christ. So however we conduct ourselves in the Christian life ought to be according to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to notice then, what is the solution to that? If I'm not to be taken captive by these things that are all summarized as not according to Christ, how do I watch with vigilance? How do I not get carried away as a captive or as plunder? How do I stand firm on that belief that Christ is indeed all that I need and in him I have all that I need? Well, Paul answers that in the next uh, three points, as it were. So the first is Christ, he'll give us three aspects of the Lord Jesus Christ to help combat these things. The first is this, Christ the fullness of deity. Look, look at verse 9 and how he describes the one in whom all things in our life ought to be accorded. For in him, the him is Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Sounds a whole lot like what uh, the apostle John wrote in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. Paul is again pushing to the front of our minds something that he brought up in verse 19 of chapter 1. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And I hope you remember that when we, when we looked at that, we looked at Christ as that fulfillment that all of the the temples and the tabernacle and the garden temple, all of those things all pointed ahead to him. How is it that God will dwell with a fallen humanity? And in the early iteration, the garden, and later in the uh, tabernacle and then in the temple, those were all shadows and types pointing ahead to the fullness of the way in which God would dwell with us, and that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so it's almost like Paul, in a little bit of polite, amiable banter back and forth, says, as it were, you're going to add what to Jesus? Hold on, let, let me get this clear. The, the one who is the fullness of deity. There, there's nothing that he lacks that he needs to have. He, he is in all senses, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Tell me again what you uh, lack in him. T tell me again how he's, he's fallen short, not coming through. The pockets are running a little shallow with regards to how he can provide. Tell me again how the fullness of deity is not scratching some itch you have. You need to be reminded, Christian, again and again and again, just who this Lord Jesus Christ is. 
Because we're, we are, maybe above all other things, forgetful creatures. And in the moment when the subtle words or the bullish uh, pressuring comes upon you and you're tempted to, to buckle again and think that something needs to be added to Christ, remind your own heart and soul or have a brother or sister help remind you, brother, sister, he's everything you need. There's nothing lacking in him. And, and so he's not failed you. He's not going to come up short for you. He's the fullness of deity dwelling bodily. He drives our hearts right back to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, where he, as our older brother, king, prophet, high priest, everything, is the fullness of God, dwelling, as mind-blowing as it is, bodily. So setting that in context before our hearts and minds says, so in whatever area you're looking at or dealing with or wrestling with, this Christ is the fullness of God dwelling. And almost as though he were to anticipate our objection, say, well, okay, but what kind of access do I have to the fullness of God? Like it's one thing, I remember... Didn't plan to say this, Uh, so you know it's going to be, well, it's going to make my wife nervous. (laughs) I went, I did two funerals. uh, The whole seven years I was at King's Cross. One of them was for a dear member. One was for a lady I'd never met because they didn't go to our church, but they wanted me to do their mom's funeral. And while I won't go into all the crazy details of that day, they had a spread downstairs afterwards. I mean, cheesecakes, carbs everything that you could want. And I stood like a Gentile out in the court looking over the fence and never got invited to eat. And you might say they looked at you and thought you could stand to miss a meal, but that's irrelevant. (laughs) Never got an invite. So the fullness of that meal, because I did not have access to it, it was, it just bugged me the whole time actually. So what good does a full Christ do if you don't have access to him? It doesn't solve anything for me. Telling me that there's an abundance of of food downstairs at a church, if I'm not invited, it does not help a brother out. Not at all. Look at what he says next. Verse 10. And lest you doubt it, you have been filled. In him, the fullness of of deity dwelling bodily, you are united inseparably to him. You have a seat at the table. You're not out there in the court of the Gentiles like I was. You have a son's seat, a daughter's seat, and you're there at that table By right. It's not like you snuck in and you hope you can down as many pieces of cheesecake before they find you. That's not the arrangement. You have a son's position now. You have a daughter's position now. You can say in Christ, I have a right to be here. Not for anything I've done. Don't get that wrong. But for everything he's done. You might say, well, who invited you? The master of the feast did. And unless you want to pick a fight with him, I'd walk away. In this mythical, imaginary conversation that you're having. You are filled in the one who, verse 9, is the fullness. Do you see the parallel? Even the English like, does a great job showing, hey, the same word used up in verse 9, used down in verse 10. The fullness of deity is filling you from his fullness. Not doling out divinity, not like, yeah, you're part God now, you're part. No, like, no, that's not what the thing, that's not the thing he's giving out. But we have union with him, and therefore in that union, we have what he has. The blessings and the benefits that are his are now ours. 
And we sit at the table as sons and daughters. And none can remove us from that place. So what do we do when various sources, spiritual or otherwise, come and they say, do you know what you need? Yeah, nothing. (laughs) No, no, no. You need Aristotelianism. No, I'm good. Well, you, you need this overemphasis on tradition. No, I'm okay. You need all this, like, don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, don't. No, I, I have the one who is all that I need. Thank you. And I don't need some spiritual life hack that's going to suddenly, easily, and miraculously unlock all my problems. No, I have all that I need in him, please and thank you. And you can't add to him whatsoever. Any addition to the Lord Jesus Christ is like the rest of math. It's bad. I'm sorry to all you parents who teach your kids. Math's good, kids. All right, just do better at it than I did or Brian did. So thirdly, We want to consider Christ the fullness of authority. Christ the fullness of authority. And you can see the logical development that Paul is driving here. It would be one thing to say, here, you have a Savior who meets all your needs and who is the fullness of deity and, and he is able to provide all that you need in this life. But what if someone comes along and outranks him. What, what, what happens if that's the case? Couldn't I get bossed around by someone of a higher pay grade? Well, the answer is that uh, no, there's no one higher on the, on, the, on the list of authority. And that's what Paul unfolds for us in the middle of verse 10. You've been filled in him. Now, in case we need just a reminder of who the him is, who is the head of of or over all rule and authority. So Paul says here, the, the, the Savior that you serve, the one with whom you have inseparable union, the fullness of deity dwelling bodily, who then fills you, he is the head, the authority over everything. Now, he's already addressed the headship of Christ further back in verse 16 of chapter 1. He says, for uh, by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, interesting set of words here, or rulers or authorities, the same two kind of words that show up in our text, all things were created through him and for him. Also, if you look down at verse 18, he's said to be the head of the body of the church. If all we had was that, he's the head of the church, you might say, okay, in matters of faith and belief, practice, Christ is the top of the food chain. Like, he's the boss. But what about in all the other stuff of life? All the other authorities and powers and rulers out there, those of, of, of a physical variety, those of a spiritual one. What of them? What is Christ's relationship with them? And Paul says, oh, easy, I, I can answer for you. He's their boss too. And you might say, well, they don't believe he is. That has never stopped an employer <laughs> from talking to his employee. Like when I was head toilet cleaner, janitor, if you want to use a sophisticated word, and I told someone under me, like, hey, I need you to go do this. And they were to say, you know what? I don't really see you as my boss. I'm not going to be like, oh, my bad. I'm going to say, I don't care. (laughs) If you want to continue to have a job here, Go clean up that classroom or whatever it was. So just the fact that they don't believe that he is does not make it valid or invalid. Christ is Lord over all, whether Caesar knows that or not. 
Whether the world and the nations recognize it or not. Whether the spiritual powers, although they probably probably have a far better idea about his authority than we think they do. Whether they acknowledge it or not. There will not be in all of your life someone who outranks him. So what does that mean with the way that I hear and therefore hopefully obey his word? I hear it not as the word of men. I hear it not as a a list of, hey, this would be better. I hear it for what it is. The commands of the king of kings. So what happens when someone else in my life tells me to disobey it? I say take a hike respectfully. What if Caesar says, church, you'd better tune up on these areas? Um, We are a people under authority. And we're not going to buckle on that. So we're not going to talk the way they want. We're not going to live the way they want. Why? We're people under authority. So I'm not going to be bossed around. I'm sure you all worked with someone in your past who was of the same status as you but then thought they could boss you around? You're like, no, dude, that's not how this works. That's kind of the way it is with life. When those come in, and either with luring words or with bullish demands, try to push us off Christ, you know what, say, you know what, you're just, you're outranked on this one big time. And uh, you might want to square things with him, but I'm going to listen to his word. And that's going to be the thing that dominates and drives my life. You might say, what if they think I'm a wacko? They will. That's fine. Just lean into it. What if they think like that's over, overly simplistic and they have all these words they call me? I don't care. You are following the word of the king of kings. Amen. Do not be pushed off your spot by lesser authorities. They'll answer to him. Trust me, they will. But you don't want to have to answer for why you abandoned the commands of a king for the threatenings of a peasant. That's not a conversation you want to have. The biggest peasant we probably listen to is the one that lives right here. Right? Right? This one thinks he's the boss pretty much all the time. And I need to even remind this wretched thing. You are not the boss. He is. And I'm going to spend and be spent for him. We've got to get going. Because the whole point of this was to get to baptism. Number four. Christ, the fullness or the fullest of saviors. So, why do, we not, or why do we need to not be pushed off the confession that Christ is enough? Well, he's the fullness of deity. You can't add anything to him. And he's the fullest of authority. Like, no one can outrank him. And then uh, he's the fullest and most complete Savior. He is arguably, not even, he is inarguably the only Savior of the world. Many others will call themselves Saviors. But he's the only one who can actually save. Look at verse 11. In him, again, just driving us back to a deep, rich Christology. In him, also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. I say, how does this have to do with me saying Christ is enough? Well, as the savior of the body, he draws near to each Sinruan's uh, son and Sinruan daughter, and he's able to save them. Now, he does it in a particular kind of way. Paul says it, it, it was actually in Christ that we received a circumcision, but it, was, it, it would be different than others. It would be one made without hands. Now, his using, I wish we had time to develop this like the afternoon service, but we're not. (laughs) When he draws on that imagery of, of without hands, it's actually very important. 
it should draw our minds back. You know what? When I read Daniel chapter 2, there was a stone that came from heaven that was, well, it was made without hands. Obviously, God made it. And then at other places, when I was reading in Hebrews 9 of the temple into which Christ enters, made by God, I mean, it was described as that which was made without hands. This, the terminology of without hands is meant to stand in contrast to the way idols are described. Idols are seen as the thing made by man's hands. Why would you then worship something you made, dummy? That was the English, well, that's in the Greek somewhere, I promise. So that idea of making something with hands as the product of man is set in contrast to what God does. And he's telling you this circumcision, it, it wasn't what was in the Old Testament. God did it. You might say, well, what did God do? Well, the idea of to cut off has a direct correlation when we uh, compare what the sign, circumcision, was and what the object was. Listen to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And Yahweh, your God, will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and that you might live. Or go to Romans 2.29. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit and not by the letter. So you might say, how is he tying this into the sufficiency of Christ? He is in this way. Christ, your Savior, came to you. And he could do something for you that no one could do, not even you. He could give you a new heart. He could give you a heart that instead of just like beating with a love of self, like me, 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 he could actually take that nasty thing out and give you one that for the first time beat for him. Do you realize he's the only one who can do that? I can't do it for me. Parents, you can't do it for your kids. Spouses, you can't do it for your spouse. Only Christ can cut a heart. Only Christ can remove the, the, the fleshy element or the sinful element of the heart. And you might say, well, how is he able to do that? Well, thankfully, Paul answers that. You received a circumcision without hands, i.e., God did it. By the putting off of the body of flesh, again, and, and the desires of that flesh that beat for self. And he did it by means of what is called the circumcision of Christ at the end of verse 11. Now, if you want to spend hours, read commentators on what that means, and you'll have, well, hours to fill. Some would say, is that referring to what happened to Jesus when he was eight days old in the temple? I, I, I don't think so. Is it talking about you received the circumcision, the circumcision of Christ, i.e. baptism, which is the same as circumcision? No, no, that's not what he's saying. You might say, well, what is it? When he's talking about the circumcision, the cutting off of Christ, he is talking about the crucifixion, the cutting off of Christ. Peter O'Brien says, Here is a circumcision which entails not the stripping off of a small portion of flesh, but the violent removal of the whole body in death. Because Christ was cut for you. He now can cut your heart for him. Because he laid down his life For you, you can now receive a new heart from him and love him. And he's the only one who can do that. Philosophy can give you a fat head, but not a new heart. Tradition, I don't know what it gives you, but it can't give you a new heart. Elemental spirits will promise the world. Guess what they can't give you? A new heart. 
The best they can do is don't taste, don't touch, stay away. Doesn't actually impact the source of the thing. Christ can give you a new heart. And it doesn't matter how long you've rebelled against him. He can, in a moment, cut your heart that you would love him. And the, the, the thing that then enables him and qualifies him to do it is he was cut for you. He died in your place. So he is the only, the only one who is qualified to give his people a new heart, a new life in himself, is the one who died for you. Philosophy will never die for you. Tradition will never die for you in your place. Elemental spirits will never lay down their life for you. Only Christ has done that. And he did it perfectly and is able to give you a new heart. Not only that, but verse 12 is where he actually brings in baptismal language. And we will see this actually pictured right in front of our eyes after lunch during our second service. Look what he says in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, the imagery of when one goes under the water, it points to a spiritual reality. That that, that is what baptism and the Lord's Supper are. Physical elements that point ahead to a spiritual reality. They don't do the thing. So the the two young folks that we baptize uh, later on today... The water does not save them. The water doesn't put them in union with Christ. It is a sign that they have been. So as, as they go under the water, it pictures for us that, that in their union with him, the death Christ died, in union with him, they died. He's, he died in their place. They're united with him. And not just symbolizing death, but in which, verse 12, you were also raised with him. So when, that, uh, when, when Matthias or Geneva comes up out of the water today, it declares with physical signs, spiritual realities, that in Christ they have been raised, and in his resurrection they have real true life. Now notice this. These things pictured and signed and sealed, they can only ever happen with Christ. You weren't buried with something or someone else who died in your place. You were buried with Christ. You weren't raised with the, the, the rise of Aristotle. No, you were raised when Christ burst forth from the grave. You realize when he rose from the dead, everything he said he was and could do receives a, a, a thunderous amen from heaven when he arises, arises from the dead. Look at what he says at the end of verse 12. You did, all of this is through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. I hope you... See just the fringes of the the magnitude of that promise. He says, this is yours through faith in the powerful working of God. You realize that all that what we've talked about today is offered to every and any one of you who has ears to hear. That this all-sufficient, fullness of deity, authority above every authority, the fullest, most complete Savior can be yours today by faith. That he could be all of that to you. I would simply ask a question that we've asked many times from this pulpit. Why will you die when such life is offered to you? What have you found in Christ that is undesirable? 
Have you found a, a flaw in him? Have you found something that isn't beautiful and good and right? I invite you to, to consider him this morning. And, and if you're not a Christian, ask yourself the hard question. Why do I continue to reject him? That's only a question you can answer. I can't answer it for you. I don't know why you're rejecting him. But ye can be yours today in all of his saving power and can cut your heart and give you a new one. If you're here and you are a Christian, you might say, what do I do? Uh, in, in the one hand, like nothing. <laughs> Trust him to be all that he says that he is. And rest in not, not in your accomplishments, not in what you think you've done, not, not in all the things that you think make you a fantastic person. You rest at the end of the day in who he is. So if you're like, man, I just keep looking at myself and I get bummed out. Yeah. Shocking when you look at a sinner, you find stuff that you're not happy about. If we just have eyes for ourselves, I will not find encouragement. I won't find hope. I'm going to find all these reasons to not be really confident. But if I look at him, in the middle of a tough marriage, in the middle of tough parenting, in the middle of singleness or having a spouse die, in the middle of disease, in the middle of whatever. He is all I need. And I dare not add a thing to him. Let's pray. Father, we pray a simple and yet huge prayer. May Christ be to us his bride, all in all. May we see him for who and what he is, fairer more than 10,000. And may we say to our soul, soul, look no further than the Son of Man who died for you. Father, please arrest our fickle hearts. We confess that we believe. Help us in our unbelief. May Christ be everything to each Christian here. We pray it in his name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.